0: good morning man that was kind of a pale good morning i think you guys were up too late last night thank you very much all right i feel better already (laughs) i i asked for that so i deserve it this is lesson 29 in our series on the study of mark and I have to say, I've, I've sort of giggled, uh, as I've thought about the, the way in which God providentially puts passages and, and points in time, holidays in our way. Uh, a number of people, even people outside this body have said, well, what are you going to preach on this coming Sunday? It reminded me of the cartoon that I saw. I wish I could figure out where it was, but, uh, it was a cartoon and it, it was titled, The Pastor on His Knees Seeking Guidance for Sunday's Message. He was on his knees at the library and it was a book of sermons and he's rolling the dice and he's saying, come on, number 29. <laughs> That's the way some people may go for their sermons, but I gotta tell you, if, if number 29 happened to be Mark chapter 13 in our text, I think he would take a message mulligan and he would try again. I mean, think about it. Here we are, New Year's Day. I looked on the internet last night and was looking at some of the things uh, that people were saying or doing about the new year and the the essence of it was, we're hopeful that this coming year is going to be better than the last. We're optimistic and hopeful of what's going to be. My guess is that there will be a fair number of serendipity sermons uh, today. All bright, rosy futures, the good things that are going to come, and, and if that won't do it, why November's coming, and maybe there will be a change for the good that comes then. But we have to face this text. And this text tells us a very, very different story. A very sobering story, would you not agree? The abomination of desolation is not one of those happy texts that you get to preach and everybody comes away with a big smile on their face and says, oh, that's the message I really wanted to hear. This is a sober message, but it is one that we desperately need to hear. It is one that we Western Christians desperately need to hear, perhaps even more than any other people at any other point in time. Let's look at some observations from Old Testament prophecy that's been fulfilled that sets the stage for our text in Mark chapter 13. Because I think we have to read this prophecy in the light of other prophecy that's been fulfilled. What should we expect from this text? Well, if we look at Old Testament prophecy that's been fulfilled, we have to say nobody figured it out ahead of time, right? Nobody had their list of all the events for the first coming, and they just checked it off, nodded their heads, looked at each other just the way we expected It was a surprise to all of them. And yet they had the prophecies. And as we look back on those prophecies, we say, it did happen just as he said, but it didn't happen as men anticipated. The purpose of prophecy is not to tell people everything that's going to happen in the future. The purpose of prophecy is to generate hope by focusing on perseverance and encouragement. As we look at the Old Testament prophecies and we see them coming true, we see God's word is true, it's reliable, and we can stake our, la- our lives on it. Prophecy is given, I love this text in Isaiah 48, although I admit every time I lose it, it takes me a while to find it again, in Isaiah 48, 5-7. through seven, God is saying to the, the people of Israel, I'm telling you this in advance. It, it, Oh, let me back up a step. You know people, young people today, but other people too. When you tell them something, their comeback is, I knew that. I knew that. Well, Isaiah is God saying to them, I'm telling you this in advance. Not so that you'll know it in advance, but when it happens, you'll look back. and, And I'll say to you, you didn't know that. I told you that and I did it. You didn't know it. We can expect from Old Testament prophecy to find apparent contradictions. Now, that's what Peter is really dealing with in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. The Old Testament prophets are looking and they're saying, My goodness, I'm writing about suffering of Messiah. I'm talking about the glory of Messiah and his triumph. What in the world do I do with these two texts? Uh the the prophets wrote about the deity of Messiah that he was God and yet They wrote about the humanity of the Messiah that he is man and they're saying it can't be these are contradictions No, they're not Once we see them fulfilled we understand how apparent contradictions are resolved It seems to me that it's fairly clear as we look at Old Testament prophecy that there is no crystal clear or emphatic distinction made between the first coming of our Lord and our second, and the second coming of our Lord. There's not this nice, neat compartmentalization of first and second. And the reason is it's all part of one package. When you stop and look at it from an eternal perspective, it is God's work of redemption. And so there is no great distinction made, although we see it, of course, when our Lord comes for the first time. And then there is what we would say is the near and distant element. For example, in the prediction in Isaiah 7 about the birth of a child from a virgin or a young maiden, I believe that there was a sign that happened in that day and time and that that sign is a prototype of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Near prophecy, distant prophecy. And therefore, I conclude to my satisfaction that prophecy may have more than one fulfillment, double fulfillment, maybe even more than that. And I have to confess, the abomination of desolation is one of those events that I see that may well have multiple occurrences. Now let's look at some observations from new testament prophecy as for instance we would find in the olivet discourse here's a presupposition i believe you have to have if you believe in the authority the inerrancy of scripture then you have to say god does all things well remember that's what they said of jesus he does everything well he does So when we come to this prophecy, let us be very careful that we don't come with a mindset that says, you know, this is really kind of a badly written text. I mean, it is so confusing and muddled. We just got to sift through this mess like an English teacher with a bad term paper trying to make sense of what it says. We have to come to the conclusion, God wrote this beautifully and meticulously to say what he wanted to say clearly and to obscure what he wanted to obscure from our vision. So let's come to the text with, with that kind of mindset. Obscurities, therefore, are deliberate. He keeps things from us that we do not need to know. One of those would be the exact timing of the coming of the final events that the disciples wished Jesus to reveal to them. The uh, truths that are clearly stated are obviously the message that we are meant to get from it. And I would say that with all the debate that happens over a text like this, if we can step back and say, what is it all Christians ought to agree about? That's probably the main message. And we ought not to get all excited about the things that we differ over. And we are told in this text in particular, the points that we need to ponder if they are not exactly crystal clear they may be things we need to meditate upon and he says let the reader understand what i am saying when i refer to these events let the reader understand what this means that means that point ought to be pondered we ought to be thinking in matthew's words we ought to be thinking about what daniel says about the abomination of desolation because what jesus says is consistent with what Daniel says. Therefore, we understand Jesus through, in part, the writings of Daniel. Everything that Jesus foretells, even the bad stuff, is the outworking of his eternal purpose. When we look at these things, and you have to say, this is not not the kind of thing, you know, bedtime reading that you go, and it just puts you off to sleep. There's some terrible stuff that happens here. But having said that, Jesus is fulfilling his purposes. In Luke's text, in Luke twenty-one, twenty-two, uh, he makes that very clear. He says, because of th- these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So these things happen in fulfillment of God's purposes. The focus here is on the hard times. The emphasis is on warning and exhortation. It is not uh, all good uh, knee-slapping stuff that we read here. It is serious business, and sometimes Christians need to be more serious about the future. And here's one. The synoptics set the boundaries, the, the outer boundaries. Now, I almost... I did this for you on powerpoint and then i thought it'd be so confusing i i left it away but what i do is i take the parallel text and i just set them side by side and i look at each one and it can be very very helpful for example if you just look at verse 14 of our text where it speaks about the abomination of desolation when we come to Matthew's account in Matthew twenty-four fifteen, he says it's the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. And when we come to Luke's gospel, he says in chapter 21, verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know its desolation has come near. So now we have a broader picture. So we have to be careful when we look at Mark that we don't somehow go beyond the parameters that's been, that have been established by all of the synoptics, and that becomes our guide. Then we look for the particulars of Mark's account and seek to find his emphasis, uh, that is, for us, and the argument of his uh, book. Okay, what we've already been told in Mark chapter 13 disciples are awestruck by the temple the buildings the beautiful stones and as i have suggested i think the uh, apostles are all looking to see which office is theirs when the kingdom is established jesus says don't get too attached this place is going down one stone won't be left upon another then they ask jesus what is the sign that indicates that these things are about to take place and Jesus does not answer that question. He does not want to give them the precise timing. What he wants to do is give them the essence of this lengthy period of time that is going to happen and the dangers that it brings for believers. So the Lord Jesus has told us to be on our guard. He has said in verse 10, the gospel must be preached to all the nations before these things take place. And now he comes to the abomination of desolation. But we need to look as well to what follows. After our text, we will see in verse 24 and 25 that great cosmic chaos, the stars falling, the sun and the moon not giving forth its light. That is the introduction to our our Lord's second coming, uh, that will be described there in verses 26 and 27. What's interesting to me is when you look at the proportions then, you see verses 28 through 37, the lion's share of that text is are words of exhortation to the disciples about how they should conduct themselves in the light of the coming of our Lord. Well, now we come to the question, what is the abomination of desolation? That, of course, is a big question. Not everybody agrees. I think you could see that in all three, even Luke's gospel, where he says, know then that the desolation has come near. He assumes, like Matthew and Mark, who have told us, let the reader understand. And and I understand that to be Mark's words to us. Of saying you need to listen to this and to ponder what this means so he is uh, saying to us give thought to these things and Mark uh, Matthew in particular says give thought to what Daniel has said about the abomination of desolation Daniel 8 Daniel 9 Daniel 11 Daniel 12 in all uh, four of those texts you have in view primarily Jerusalem the temple the cessation of regular sacrifice and the uh, somehow the bringing in of something which is an abomination uh, and a defilement probably in, in some cases at least idolatry and then of course there was the sacrifice of the swine uh, that took place in the second century BC but all of that and the destruction of Jerusalem That sets the stage. So we are not surprised when we come to Matthew 24 at verse 14, which says it involves the holy place, and when Luke tells us the armies are surrounding Jerusalem. So somehow the abomination of desolation has to be related to the temple, to Jerusalem, and to a destruction that is going to take place in the future, whether that be near or far or both. Okay, the abomination of desolation, is that a matter of history or is it a matter of prophecy for us? Is it past or is it future? One of the things that I guess I've come to conclude, let me just back up for one second. The preterist view is that all of the things that Jesus has said here related to the abomination of desolation, are things that were fulfilled in 70 AD by the sacking of, uh, 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 in the sacking of Jerusalem by Titus. And therefore, that those things are not something that are yet future. Now, it seems to me that all of this hangs on one fundamental decision, and that is this Is there a future for Israel? Is there a future for Israel? See, when you come to, to uh, uh, um, basically uh, reform theology, it says Israel was replaced by the church. And so we don't look now for Israel in the plan and purpose of God. All of that has been taken over by the church. I think there is an element of truth, not a big one, but an element of truth there, but the reality is, it doesn't take into account texts like Romans 11, where it talks about God fulfilling his promises to the nation Israel. It doesn't take into account other passages, but we also need to see Ephesians 2 uh, as the blending together into one new man. So I don't know, this is one of those incompatibilities. I don't know how to handle the fact that Israel and the church have been brought together into one new man, and yet there still are distinct promises for both, for each. Don't know how to handle that, but I can't deny one set of texts in order to land with another. I just hold them both and, and kind of feel like one of those Old Testament prophets and say it's going to be clear sooner or later. Preterist position, therefore, says all of it was fulfilled in 70 AD. Futurist position, as I've heard it, seems to downplay 70 AD and to to emphasize the future events, and yet I can't help but see 70 AD as as related to this. And so I come out saying both. I think that 70 AD was a foreshadowing of the great one, but there's just too many problems It's it, it, that, that aren't settled by 70 A.D. One, if those days were not cut short, then then there wouldn't be anybody left. I, I don't know where that happened in 70 A.D. Uh, it, there's never been anything like it before or after. I don't know that I can say that of 70 A.D. And the age of the Gentiles ends with it. So I am of the mind That there is some kind of double fulfillment taking place. Jesus is speaking, therefore, to his disciples about something that will happen in their immediate or not too distant future, and he is speaking of that which will happen later in the more distant future. So, what are they supposed to do when they see the abomination of desolation coming? Verses 13 through 18. One, They are to be prepared for it so they see it and know it when it comes. They are expected to recognize it. Folks, you can't flee if you don't know you're fleeing from something. You just can't do it. You've got to have some sense of what it is. Let the reader understand. I take it that there is enough given that they should see that to be the case. This is spoken of to Judeans. That's why the preterist has to go with this. This is spoken of to Jews, about Jews. And so if you don't see a future for Israel, then you have to see it ending in 70 AD. And and that's where they go. But these Judeans are said to flee from Jerusalem, not to it. What's interesting is to overlay that now on the Old Testament and the prophets like Jeremiah who are speaking to the people who are in Jerusalem and Judea, and he says to them, you are to surrender to the Babylonians. But they fled, as it were, into the temple as though it were some kind of magical defense mechanism that God would not allow to be destroyed. And so staying in Jerusalem was actually suicidal. They are to flee from Jerusalem, and the reason is, my friend, This sacking of Jerusalem is the judgment of God on disobedient Israel. That's what he says in Luke at at, at the rejection that's going to come. And he's saying, as Jesus weeps, he speaks about what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And it's what happens in 70 AD to them. So they are not to look to Jerusalem for safety. They are to flee from Jerusalem in order to be safe. There is that warning to young mothers, and, and I have to say, I, this caused me some agony. And I said to myself, wait a minute, wait a minute. If this thing's going to happen, pregnant mothers and nursing mothers, they're going to be in a bad way. Now, I happen to have a daughter who's kind of crossed that line, but, you know, kind of the, the, the pregnant mother and now the nursing mother, and, and you're saying, wow, this is really bad. And, and then I thought about Luke's gospel where Jesus is on his way to the cross And the women are weeping. And Jesus says to them, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. But it seems to me that the purpose of this is warning. Jesus is saying this so that women who are pregnant and nursing will be responsive to the signs that the the abomination is at hand so that they will leave and can leave. So I see this as a merciful warning rather than as... Uh, some great judgment that has somehow specifically been aimed at at these women. Pray that it not be in the winter. Oh, I got to say one more thing. You know what's interesting about this text is to read it in light of the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses late 6, all through 7, is uh, Stephen, right? And his death... Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, Because of the stoning of Stephen, all the saints were dispersed from Jerusalem, except the apostles. Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus is here speaking to the apostles? Jesus is merciful in the sense that the persecution and death of Stephen has cleared the place out. Of Christians, so it seems at least, and now the apostles remain, and Jesus is saying to them, Be attentive because when this comes, you need to clear out. So, I find it interesting that he specifically speaks to his apostles in this regard pray that it not be in the winter. So, there must be some sense in which the prayers of God's people regarding this event actually have some bearing on the timing of the events, so far as the season might be concerned. If you think just about the, the war, for instance, uh, in which Russia was involved in Germany in World War II, how the climate and, and, and the season had a great bearing on the outcome, you can see why this may be important. Okay, now we move to that which accompanies the abomination of desolation, that is, Great Tribulation, or we might even say, The Great Tribulation. This tribulation, we are told, is greater than anything in history, past or future, something the likes of which no one has ever seen before or will ever see after if god did not shorten it then no flesh nobody would have been spared i take it he's speaking now particularly of saints and the tribulation that comes their way that that the the church as it were the population of believers i slipped didn't i Well, if you didn't catch that, that's fine. The the saints will will, uh, endure persecution. It, It would appear that they would be wiped out had God not intervened and shortened that for the sake of his elect. But again, look at Luke 21, verses 23 and 24. This tribulation is wrath against this people. In my mind, it's clearly Israel and in particular in 70 the israel who rejected jesus and i would say in the future those again who reject the lord jesus and it's focused upon jerusalem it ends when the times of the gentiles ends here comes the warning and exhortation in verses 21 through 23 When Jesus was asked by his disciples, what is the sign that indicates that these things, the last days, are coming upon us? Jesus does not give them a sign, and he does not give them a date. But what he does do is give them a warning. Beware, be on the alert, do not be deceived. And the deception is the deception of those who would claim to be Messiah... I take it, and especially when you overlap this with Old Testament prophecy, uh, such as Jeremiah, those who tell us that we're not going to go into Babylonian captivity. If we do, it's going to be short, and we'll be right back after a holiday in, in, in Babylon. They are denying, and they are saying, peace and safety, when in reality it is judgment and destruction which lies ahead. So he returns to that, and he says, beware of the false messiahs. Now, these folks have some credibility because they will come with signs and wonders. They're going to come with the evidence of supernatural power, and that's going to give some credibility in some people's minds. But remember, Deuteronomy said, false prophets are not only those whose prophecies do not come true, they are those who do things that do come true, but they turn you away from him. So they have signs and wonders. They promise relief from suffering. And they seek to bring deception and bring about the following of those who are God's elect, if it were possible. Now, the second coming he says, will not be a private event. Remember when they say, he's off here, he's over there, and somehow you're going to go flee off and see this person or that person here or there? Jesus says, don't bother. Because when I come, it's going to be global. Everybody will know Every eye will see, every knee will bow eventually. Everybody's going to know. You won't have to go off to some place and have this kind of Gnostic Messiah who only the few initiated know where to find and and they follow him. It's going to be a global thing. And his exhortation is this, Be watchful. It, It really is just a word that means be awake. And you remember later on, Paul will talk about not sleeping at night, but being awake and alert. Watch what 's taking place. Be alert. I was thinking of this from my experience. I was thinking of this in terms of driving uh, we 've driven to Washington state a lot of times. I remember the 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 fastest trip we ever made we left here on a friday afternoon and got there 2300 miles later on sunday afternoon just actually when they were landing on the moon and and uh, maybe that was sunday evening but we drove long hard miles i say we and i really mean i we we got to idaho and it was probably nine or ten o'clock at night and i had not had much sleep as you can imagine and and you know that terrible feeling when your head goes down, and all of a sudden you realize, for a f- fraction of a second, you hope that, that that you've you've been out of it. You don't know what's going on. I remember distinctly there was this rather good sized bird that was in the middle of the highway, and I woke up just in time to hear a thunk. And i got to tell you, on that adrenaline, it got us to the next rest stop. But, But there is that kind of dullness that comes about, a kind of sleepiness on the part of Christians that is dull to what lies ahead, to what's going on. That, our Lord Jesus says, needs to be dealt with by watchfulness. Notice he says, I have told you everything ahead of time. I think that's Mark's distinct, the word uh, everything is Mark's distinct uh, word that is used there. It says to me, not that he has told us every single particular in all of its sequence. I think what it's saying is he's given us the broad scope and he has not left out any essential part And if that is the case, then it has all kinds of implications related to false prophets. Because false prophets are going to come along and they're going to say, Oh, you're right, the scriptures, they say all of these things, but there's a new word from God. There's an added revelation that you need to hear. (laughs) What Jesus says is, you know all you need to know. From me, you don't need the extra revelation from others. What did this mean for the disciples? Well, it means they ought to sober up and brace up for hard times. I've suggested to you that while the disciples came in a fearful frame of mind, I think the triumphal entry and and the possession of the temple and and the uh, shaming, as it were, of the questioners has given the disciples a bit of euphoria. And Jesus is saying, hard times are coming, folks. Hard times are coming. It's going to begin with the re- rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. But these are hard days. And you guys need to sober up. <laughs> it reminds me kind of of a drill sergeant uh, getting uh, new recruits. You don't take them out for ice cream Sundays and tell them what a great thing this... it Well, you don't tell them what the recruiters told them to get them to that point. You toughen them up for what lies ahead. That is what uh, Jesus is doing. Hard times lie ahead. They need to be aware of those who promise peace and prosperity, even them, it seems. Jesus warns not to fall for those who will claim to be him and bring an end to the world as it is and the entrance of the kingdom. What does it mean for us? Especially as we come to a new year, a year where everybody wants to be optimistic, a year (laughs) where everybody makes resolutions that they're not going to keep, but they think everything's going to be better. Be biblically realistic about the future. Think about what the Scripture says. Think about what Jesus says about the future. Don't think about what any politician, Republican, Democrat, or Independent tells you it's going to be like Listen to what Jesus says it's going to be like. And it's not going to be pretty. Now, I have to say at this point, folks, people all over the world today, if I were standing in a church, if I could, in North Korea or in some places in India or China, these people wouldn't act shocked at what we're reading and <laughs> say, so what's new? Okay, so our tribulation's got a little T, and this tribulation has a capital T. We've seen a lot of it. People, folks, right now are dying for their faith. People who are believers in North Korea are freezing to death under bridges as they're trying to leave and go to China where they can worship God and eventually get down to, to South Korea. These are terrible Terrible things that are happening to God's people today and we sit here in the comfort uh, You know of our heated and air-conditioned building and we go home to our comfortable meal. There are people today Who don't have food for their children who don't have heat for their houses who don't have electricity? Some of that because they're Christians some of it because they live in an imprisoned country So what we're hearing here? comes to us as unusual, comes to us as surprising. Most of the world, through most of history, would say, in effect, more of the same, maybe just worse. That's what they'd say. For us, it's a revelation. Expect suffering and persecution. We need to be alert and watchful. Our experience, as I've just said, is not The norm. Our experience is not the norm. Throughout all of church history and throughout most of this world, our experience is not normative. So, what is the good news? I owe this to Carrie Dula. When we meet on Friday mornings, Carrie said, not last Friday, but the week before, he said, You know, with all of these things kind of being negative, what's the good news? What is the good news? That's what the gospel's called, isn't it? Does Jesus lure them in with the good news and then drop the bad news on them? Bait and switch? What is the good news? One, suffering is part of the good news. When Jesus proclaims the offer of the gospel, he does not proclaim ease. Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted for me. He clearly indicates that. When people are called to follow him, he says, take up your cross and follow me. Luke chapter 9, people are saying, well, I'll follow you, Jesus. And Jesus says, "Um, I don't have a house. I don't have a pillow. I don't have a Motel 6. I don't have the good life, if if that's what you're thinking of in, in material earthly terms. Don't have it. Over and over, Jesus talks about the hardship of following him. Maybe I should stop there for one minute and just say to anybody who might perchance be hearing me who is not a believer, the gospel is not the offer of the good life here and now. It is not the offer of the good life in the sense of material ease and prosperity and everything comes up roses. It's not. The offer of the gospel is the offer of God's provision for our sin and the promise of heaven, but through gates of difficulty. Remember when Paul is preaching in Acts, I think it's in chapter 14, he comes back to the church and he says, it is through difficulty and adversity that we enter into the kingdom of God. He says to that new church, things are going to be tough. That's the way it was meant to be the gospel, tells it like it is. Suffering is a sign of spiritual health. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says, he who has suffered has ceased from sin. <laughs> well, I, I, I want to be careful with that, but I think what he's saying is this. Suffering for the sake of Christ, go back to early chapter 4, suffering for the sake of Christ is a good thing. Because if they are rejecting you for Jesus' sake, they are rejecting you because they see your lifestyle has changed. And that threatens their lifestyle. So persecution is actually uh, an encouragement to believers, or should be, if it is for the sake of Christ. Suffering is a means of purification. 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, though you go through trials and whatever, it is the purifying process by which God makes your faith more solid gold. Suffering brings purification or is intended to do so. Suffering is identification with Christ. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, that I may know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. There is something about suffering for Christ that gives us a greater appreciation for that which we we remember every week in the death of Christ. There is a sense of intimacy that we identify with him. And that's why in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that I am making up on my part that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. I enter into his sufferings. And therefore, Paul rejoices In those sufferings as we should do as well it's an opportunity to proclaim Christ when we that's what what I think Jesus is talking about when he says when you were brought before councils and whatever don't give thought to what you would say he has also said in the near context the gospel must be preached to all the nations So in my understanding, what Jesus is saying is suffering gives us the opportunity to give our testimony in a way that has a lot more weight. Folks, if your life is on the line, if your neck is is on the rope is on your neck and somebody's got their their hand on the on the trap door and you witness for Jesus, that counts for more than the witness that comes out of comfort. All right, the main message. I've been working up to this. I have to tell you, this is a typical scenario for me. It didn't come to me until this morning. I I am sorry to say it did not come to me until this morning. But it came. And that is, what is the main point of all this? If I were going to go to an Old Testament book where I would overlay our text with that book it would be the book of job it would be the book of job satan says to god basically uh, satan's a prosperity preacher and and he says hey job (laughs) look the guy's rich he's got a great family he's got a life of ease why wouldn't anybody serve you for that so god says then take it away take it away. Because what God wants to prove to Satan and all of the celestial hosts, now I'm bringing in Ephesians chapter 3, where all of this drama that's going on is a drama and where the celestial hosts are involved. And by the way, the conflict they're involved too. But what God is saying is, I am worthy to be worshipped. I am worthy to be praised in the midst of the worst circumstances. So the greater the adversity, the greater the suffering, the greater the tribulation, the greater the faithfulness of His saints, the greater the glory of God, because we are saying, He is worth it. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our faithfulness. He is worthy of our witness. It is about Him. And the problem with the prosperity gospel is, it says it's all about me. I'll serve God if he brings me this. If he answers my prayer and doesn't let me get sick and makes me rich. It's about me. That's what Satan said. And by the way, it's what Job's friends said. Well, Job, it must be you. Because surely you would be rich. And you would be in a life of ease if you were rightly related to God. So there is a great drama going on. And in the midst of this drama, God is demonstrating to all of the cosmic forces and to all the world, He is worthy of men's worship and adoration and praise and faithfulness, no matter how hard and how bad it gets. And let me remind you, no matter how hard that does get, it never touches the suffering of Jesus. Never touches the degree to which he has suffered in order to bring, out, bring about our salvation. Acts chapter 5, thinking about Peter and John brought back. they have been beaten, told not to preach in Jesus' name. So they left the council rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. That's the way it's supposed to be for us. We are supposed to enter into it. We're not supposed to seek it, but it will find us. If we are faithful, it will find us. And if we are faithful in the midst of that, we can praise God that we were counted worthy to suffer for him. I I had a sort of an emotional experience this morning. I don't generally do those. (laughs) I don't even seek them. But I I was thinking about a song that I had heard uh, that was called in fact, I think it was on the radio this morning. These are they. Gaithers, anybody hear it? These are they who have gone through tribulation. It's talking about the tribulation saints. And it's talking about them entering into the joy of heaven. You ought to hear that song. You ought to listen to it. It isn't theologically perfect, but it's got a good message. What a blessing. What a joy to, to identify with those saints who enter into eternal bliss, who have suffered great tribulation. The next song, the next song on, this is the Australian uh, homecoming. Sorry, I almost brought it this morning, but it was a tape, and I didn't know if we were technologically that archaic, so I left it. (laughs) Archaic? (laughs) Okay. The next song, Anthony Berger does. And it's the Hallelujah Chorus. I have to tell you, that that rocked my emotional boat. Think about it. The tribulation saints go through the grief of this life. And when they get to heaven, the Hallelujah Chorus. That's what it's worth for the believer. Father, thank you for this new year, not because it promises better times but because it offers us opportunities to be faithful to you. May we we be watchful, may we persevere, when hard times come, when harder times come. May we be faithful to you and not look for easy ways out. May it all be to your glory. May the world see through our faithfulness that you are worthy of our praise.